Well, well, here we are again. This is another special bonus episode of Foreign Correspondence. I'm your host, Jake Spring. John Lee Anderson at The New Yorker is just too much of a big deal and has too much insightful stuff to say that I couldn't bear to leave this on the cutting room floor. Really, he has some incredible insight into what's gone wrong in Latin America and why democracy hasn't really succeeded in the region. He'll also shed light on what it's like to work in the ivory tower that is The New Yorker, or whatever your preferred metaphor is. If you haven't listened to the main interview with John Lee yet, I highly recommend you go back and check that out. So here we go. Here are some additional excerpts from my conversation with John Lee Anderson of The New Yorker. I was wondering, like, how things have changed now. Like, I feel like a lot of these pieces, I mean, it's not Hugo Chavez levels of access, but you have very good access to these world leaders. And, uh, you know, I just feel like the world has taken a turn where it's just harder to imagine leaders opening up to you like that now. I mean, has it taken a swing in the other direction because of autocracy and, and populism and all that. I mean, I just can't imagine a lot of Latin American leaders wanting to sit down with you like this these days. Well, actually, I have a piece in the current New Yorker, which is a profile of the young president of Chile, Gabriel Boric, who, which... Right, yeah, I, I just read that one. It's a very good piece. In which, actually, I do have, once again, quite interesting access to him as he's president-elect in the run-up to his inauguration. So it does happen. He's a different figure. It is different. I mean, Chavez was a one-off. You know, I've since been with, say, his successor, Maduro, and written about him, and he's a colorful figure. I've written about Lopez Obrador in Mexico, again, when he was on the campaign trail. He's more more opaque of a figure. But they'll still sit sit down with you? They oh, yeah. talk to you even if it's... okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know why they wouldn't. The point with any political leader is that they have lines at the door and there are those who worry about giving you access and therefore close the door or keep it half shut or try to thwart you. And then there are those who take a risk and a gamble. And sometimes the leaders themselves have such a brilliant persona that they override their people and want you to hang out with them like Chavez did. That was unusual. There's been a handful of others like that. But again, I've spent a long time in Latin America. I have a certain profile to a certain type of, I guess, leader. The very, very far left ones are maybe a little worried about me because after all, I am a Yankee, you know. (laughs) But because the Che thing kind of throws that off a bit and, you know, you develop your own mythology. What can I say? Bolsonaro would never give me an interview, I'm sure, but I've stood very close to him and we've exchanged, how shall I put this, hard stares. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've met with, you know, any number of leaders. You know, sometimes I haven't had the opportunity that I would have wanted to profile a certain leader when they were in power. Lula's an example, although I've met him since, and I think he's a very interesting character with whom I'd have good access. But they're all very different people. Young Gabriel Boric is not just a young leader newly elected of Chile, but the youngest leader in the world. So when I was in the piece I've just written, hanging out with him, drinking pisco and eating asados, 
that he was cooking himself, we had long and very candid, open discussions of the kind I wouldn't have had with anyone else I can think of, in or out of power in Latin America. Uh, but, you know, it's a symptom of his youth and his unique personality, I think. So, long way of, sh of saying, it happens. It does happen. I don't think that, that w w the way you pose the question is exactly perhaps the ideal framing because what you're asking me is about my access with leaders and at the same, in the same moment, the way politics in Latin America has changed. I don't think the two, one presupposes the other, if you know what I mean. There is still a left-wing trend in Latin America. I don't exclusively interview left-wing leaders. I've met many. I don't necessarily always write about them or have the same experiences with them, or find myself as interested in what they're doing or their national drama. But access doesn't have to do with the political affinity. You know, it has to do with a whole series of things. Regions change. The Middle East is no longer what it was when Saddam, Mubarak, Assad, Padre, and the rest of them were in power. Afghanistan is now back in the hands of the Taliban. North Africa is a mess in the wake of the Arab Spring with very different political dynamic to the one that pertained before the Arab Spring. And Latin America is a mess as well, but it's, it's not as close to the bone as, say, North Africa. But it's, in a larger sense, it has to be seen for what it is. It's a region in which democracy or the notional democracy that was encouraged upon it after the years of autocracy and military dictatorship, has largely failed, and in which despotism is making its way back both on the left and the right, in which corruption largely accrued through the policies that privatized this country's natural resources, has overwhelmed the politics and the societies and exported a lot of the wealth, and in which the U.S. influence always polarizing has also declined seriously and and in which and its image especially from trump on and in which china has become a more avid and open competitor primarily for resources but now also for political influence so it's not a region that has ever really known lasting or sustainable democracy except in a couple of countries and when i say that i'm talking about beyond electoral rotating presidencies. I'm talking about civic institutions and rule of law. Those are the heart blood and the seedbed of true democracy. In most countries, they simply have never gained purchase. Chile is an, is an exception and so is Uruguay. But in most of the others, it's elusive. And if you look at Colombia to the north, between our borders, Colombia being the country that exports the most cocaine and grows and exports the most cocaine of all of the countries to the United States via Venezuela and all the little statelets of the Caribbean and Central America, most of the countries in between are failed in large measure. Not to say that there isn't a kind of civic or even economic core that somehow manages to survive, but most of the regimes that were democracies notionally are succumbing to despotisms like in El Salvador, or they've swung left as in Honduras, it was a narco state. Look at Mexico, where the cartels now control significant amounts of territory. Guatemala, same thing. 
the little statelets of the Caribbean are all but overwhelmed by their function as transshipment points for the drugs. Our greatest bastion in the entire region, Colombia, exports to us. You know, these paradoxes are quite extraordinary. But, uh, I mean, Haiti, not least, probably the most failed country in the world. I used to think it was the Central African Republic, but now I would say arguably it's Haiti, maybe only next to Somalia. So our backyard, as some Americans used to like to call it, is a place where the American empire, so to speak, has both shown its, its colors, and in some cases its worst colors, and not given it enough attention not as an imperial power, but as a powerful and rich and influential neighbor. Um, the inconstancy of our own politics now driven by, you know, racialist agendas, immigration, law and order, all that stuff, and an inability to see our own impact on these countries, not least our export of weapons across the same borders that bring the coke or migrants up to us, fueling the violence below. It's become a real toxic cauldron again. And we're not quite to the point where, let's say, uh, a stable American president might point at the region and say, the region is a national security priority for this country, and therefore we need to institute new policies that help it come forward. You know, that, that has not happened. We've had everything but that. And very piecemeal or reactive, and in some cases violence furthering policies over the years and you know the chickens are coming home to roost uh, so I don't know that's uh, at, within that mix within that scenario which also includes all kinds of wonderful things you know fantastic cultures syncretic peoples creative mix of societies and ethnic groups many wonderful things this kind of Bulabes <laughs> is at a point where it could succeed or fail further. Like a lot of the world, for, unfortunately, it's a, definitely a part of the world that I find fascinating and uh, in which I have a lot of you know, experience and now context as well. And I think a, an ability to interpret, but which is at an uh, inflection point. 40 years on from the return of democracy, it is definitely a part of the world in which you can say, or, you know, part of this general perception we have that democracy is precarious now and failing in many places and needs some kind of new vision or ways in which it needs to be bolstered or, or else we slide back towards autocracy. You know, Latin America is very much at the point of the needle there. Yeah, that, that makes sense to me. The, the only other main interview question I normally ask before the fast-paced ones is just if there's a story that got away from you, a story that you wanted to tell that for some reason you never were able to. Well, at the beginning of last year of 2021, I felt a strong instinct to return to Haiti, a country that I had covered since the terrible earthquake there and returned to oh, five or six years ago to do a profile of the then leader, Mickey Martelli, a really interesting character. Now, I made several trips there in 2015-16, and I got to know his successor, Juvenal Moise. And because I've stayed in contact with people in Haiti, 
I knew over the past couple of years that things were really declining. And particularly towards the end of 2020 and early 2021, I began to feel strongly that, you know, it was time to go back to Haiti to do a piece that I should maybe profile Jovenel Moise, the president who was had become a very polarizing figure. There was really violent altercations. There was chaos in the streets. The UN had pulled out its peacekeeping troops a couple of years before, and the gangs had begun to take their place. And there was a figure, a friend of mine had gotten to know, a man called Barbecue, uh, the lamentably <laughs> named Barbecue, who had been a police officer and now ran kidnap gangs and seemed to have a wink and a nod from the presidential palace. So I had this idea of returning to Haiti to do a kind of dual profile of Barbecue, a very dangerous man, and Jovenel Moise, this embattled president who had become increasingly autocratic, and to explore also the apparent connection between the two. There seemed to be some kind of degree of tacit cooperation. Therefore, the man in the palace and the man on the streets. So how did this work? And I felt that therein lay a key to understanding a Haiti that increasingly bedeviled the comprehension of outsiders or observers to understand where it was going. Well, in the lineup of stories that I proposed in early 2021, uh, Haiti was there, but it didn't excite. And I guess I didn't push hard enough for it. And of course, last summer, uh, when I was in Central America doing another story, uh, he was assassinated. Joan Almaze was assassinated, leading to this further breakdown of the country, which continues today. And I, f I felt great regret at not having gone earlier at a time when I could have had access to him and done some variation of that story that I'd been sort of notionally playing with in my head. There you go. It's a recent regret. Uh, one I hope to ameliorate by going back there if I can at some point. The problem is, is that, you know, as the, the older you get and the more you do in this profession, I suppose those editors are in a similar position, commissioning editors. They, they can spin the globe and see stories and you can't do them all. And so right. it's difficult. And that's, that's a fairly recent one I regret. Okay, yeah. Against my better judgment, there's uh, another question or two I just feel I... I need to ask you before we move on to the the rapid fire questions which is one, one big reason you know I started this podcast is because when I was starting out in the US and like really didn't know how to become a foreign correspondent everything seemed very inaccessible like you know you read these publications and it all seems very glamorous and and inaccessible and how do people get to these places and I feel like you know, the podcast helps show how people get there, and it's often not as glamorous as it sounds. Journalists are normal people. I do feel the New Yorker in particular, maybe because they have a smaller staff, I don't think I've talked to anybody who's worked there, still has this air of, like, this, you know, ivory tower to, like, a lot of journalists, especially starting out. And I don't really know what the question is, but I... I assume like whenever I've had this image of a place, it usually ends up not being as true as it appears. You know, while long form is very glamorized, while the New Yorker is very elite, talking to you, you're a normal guy. I was just wondering if you could shed any light on how 
the New Yorker works. I really don't know what the question is, but I'm just trying to get behind, you know, yeah. this image everybody has of it. Is it the right image? And how does it actually work there, I guess? Yeah, well, in a way, I'm not the best person to ask about how the New Yorker works because I've always lived abroad. I'm one of the few that don't live in New York, although there are others, you know, that contribute to the New Yorker over the years regularly who also live in other places, you know, whether it's Georgia or California or I think there's a, one other person in London, maybe a person in Paris. And I've either lived in Spain or, or England and I'm peripatetic. So I don't, I'm not part of the office culture of the New Yorker, but I, I, I like to tell stories about how in the first few years that I worked for the New Yorker, my then editor didn't know how to use email and, and, and also refused to use it. And so <laughs> they would fly me to New York to close my pieces. And I became kind of used to this and spoiled, you know. They would put me up at a hotel, give me an office. I would work with my editor to close the piece. We would go out to celebrate by drinking martinis. I would stay on a few days to see my brother who lives there or friends and I would go home again I did this three or four times a year and I thought wonderful it's the perfect life and it allows me to, to kind of keep up with New York which I always thought was a good thing to do where I have like I say a lot of friends and colleagues so and then one day she learned how to use email and the trips just stopped <laughs> <laughs> but the uh the funny thing was, was that the New Yorker, I found, you know, they're full of extraordinary individuals. And in those days, we're talking about the late 90s and around 2000. So I would be, as I told you, given an office and wander the halls. And I had no sense that anybody knew who I was. <laughs> Everybody seemed very scholarly. There was this kind of hushed air of noble purpose and kind of almost like in a very august library. And... I remember there was one woman in particular who every time she saw me would put her hair over her face and look down and <laughs> she wouldn't let me say hello to her. And I was like, God, this is like being back at school. There's even the shy girl, you know, that kind of thing. Rarely did anybody say anything to me. So I really felt nonplussed. And so one day I told my editor, I said, yeah, hey, what's with everybody here? Why you know, doesn't anybody have any manners? Why doesn't anybody say hello? Good morning, you know, or whatever. <laughs> And she said, really? Nobody's, what? Nobody's saying hello to Anyway, I arrived in that office the next day and literally everyone like, would poke their heads out of their offices as I came by or greet me and say, hello, John Lee. Good morning. <laughs> and it was you know, like the Truman Show. It was funny. I think she'd gone around and sort of yelled at everybody and reminded them <laughs> that they had to be not just geeks, but human beings too. <laughs> So that's really, I say that in an affectionate way because basically that's kind of what it is. Yes, there are well-born people there. Yes, there are highly educated people there. There's also people there who are just damn good writers or interesting people who've gotten there through whatever quirk of fate, mostly because they are good at what they do. And they get so absorbed in the creation of this, you know, really pretty special publication that they you know, they get caught up with in their own heads. And you're, when you're walking the halls there, you're finding them in that space. They're, they're thinking. It's not a normal newsroom. So that's kind of what it is. It's changed a bit over the years with younger people 
working in the web or the photo department, and especially I guess the web all has altered things, and it's all to the good. It, I think it's less of a kind of a nerdy, geeky, rarefied place than it was. In general, it's become a more an institution that reflects the kind of diversity of the country in every way, and that's also to the good. When I go back or I come in, I haven't now for a couple of years because of COVID, etc. I think most people are still not coming in. It's a bit of a hybrid workplace, like so many. Um, but I think you know, there's plenty amongst the people I know, editors particularly, that crave the you know interaction between fact checkers and writers and editors. And not so many writers go there to work, but you know, editors, uh, the whole production team. And I think that's uh, a good thing. But yeah, it's it's rather its own place in the sense that um, there's no logical or clear path to it. You know what I mean? I'm pretty honest about the way I ended up there. You know, it happened through a probably, you know, a casual encounter over that Cuba issue and one thing led to another. It turned out to be the kind of perfect place for me because I'm a thumb-sucking kind of writer and I am happy to work with editors who, you know, are patient with me and allow me to indulge my, not just long form, but long everything. I take forever. So, <laughs> uh, and so that's kind of the way it is. There's not a, it's not like a publishing house where there's readers. If you send in an unsolicited manuscript, there's really no certain person to send in a pitch to. It's rather unusual in that sense. So if people have agents, they go through their agents. If they know somebody, they go through, you know, it's like that. But meanwhile, you have a very, you know, have a, you have an editor at the helm like David Remnick, who's both, you know, I mean, quite brilliant in his own right, but also a journalist in his heart and soul. So he's all, he's an avid reader and constantly reaching out, looking for people. So he's reading everything that's out there. And I think often reaches out to ask people if they'd be willing to work for us or to write a story. And this happens a lot. Or I don't think it necessarily happened as much before. I think it was more a kind of mysterious process. Uh, people awaited to be summoned. And that was the only way to get there. But now it's, um, you might well get a call from David Remnick if he's seen a story in whichever publication that he likes or reads and finds an interesting writing talent there or an interesting, you know, storytelling voice. I think it's not a city on the hill, but it's uh, it's the village on the hill or something. I don't know. Sure. sure. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense to me. And I mean, it also then makes sense if he's calling up people he's interested in why there are so many book authors on staff it seems like that is the pedigree you need they'll take a look at you if you've written a book basically but if that's the approach then that makes sense why he would notice how this person has storytelling chops yeah that makes sense to me and thanks for finding a question somewhere in there and giving me a response that shed some light